Well, we're, uh, we're in a series called Taking Babylon, and the idea is that Babylon in the Bible is the symbol of Satan's headquarters, the symbol of our enemy's power, the, so- the seat of his power. And so the concept of the series is that we want to look into the Bible and see how it is that we can not only fight the battles that we fight every day, but how can we push it all the way to Babylon? How can we go all the way to the seat of this thing and have true victory, true and lasting victory in our lives with the things that we face? So far, I've brought two messages, and the first was about understanding the mission. And the mission is that we as individual believers are meant to be engaged as a body of soldiers or an army in order to push back the enemy. And not, not only in our own lives, but that is true, but also in the world. And we are, we are to be engaged as agents of rescue, that somebody came and somehow rescued you from your lost predicament and somehow has come along and helped to rescue you in a variety of ways perhaps throughout your life, and that it's our calling, our mission, is to be engaged as the body of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to be agents of rescue to other people, and, and that that's, that's God's plan. Last week we looked at, well, what are the stakes? Understanding the stakes. What happens if we don't fight? What happens if we just settle into nice church? I like nice church, I've got to tell you. Uh, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot less tiring, a lot less demanding just to be nice church. But what happens if we do that? Well, first of all, we noticed last week that what's at stake are the eternal souls of billions of people. That God is using us as agents of, he calls us ambassadors for Christ, agents of his reconciliation. So that the, the lives of others are, are at stake, are definitely at stake, the eternal lives, if we just settle into nice church and do not uh, agree to fight this battle. But also the quality and the impact of your own life. You know, uh, since, since the devil can't determine the number of our days, he cannot determine the quantity of our life, he will endeavor to interrupt fiercely the quality of our lives and the impact of our lives. And so this is what's at stake if we don't fight. But also, and perhaps more than anything else, the next generation is at stake. If the church doesn't wake up and rise up and fight the fight that needs to be fight, fought, then the next generation is at stake. Because we are the product. We are the product of a heritage of faithful generations who loved Christ, who gathered together and worshipped His name, and who banded together as the army of God and fought the fights that needed to be fought along the way, so that we can be here today. And it is our privilege, but also our powerful responsibility to continue that heritage for the next generation. And we talked about the 276 Nigerian girls last week, still not found, still not found. And how I think, that is, I think the church is partly to blame for that, as we'll get to a little bit here this morning. Well, today, uh, I want to move on to the next concept. I told you I'd try to give you a sequential explanation of fighting being in and fighting this battle. I think the next thing you want to do is, is, is know your enemy, is just really know your enemy. All right, I forgot I was supposed to be doing this too. My goodness. I'll be sure to give you your bulletin on the way in, okay? There we go. Uh, oh, backwards, okay. Well, that's fine. Just deal with it, okay? Uh, it's knowing your enemy. This is a message about Satan, and I hate it. I hate it that we have to spend a whole time talking about Satan when I'd much rather talk about Jesus. But it's a whole message about knowing your enemy and who he is. But it's a critical dimension of any battle, isn't it? I mean, ball teams, they send out scouts to see who their opponent is, see what their strengths and weaknesses are, yeah? 
Military sends spies, yes, to see where the weak points are. Well, believers carefully read the Bible and listen to the Holy Spirit. I mean, you really can't overstate the importance of this, of knowing your enemy. And uh, we read the Bible, and, and yet it seems like who the devil is and stuff is muddled up in so much superstition and misinformation that I just wanted to bring a very, I want to break it down to the basics of, of who your enemy is and how that impacts the battle. So I, I want to give you four basics today so that you will uh, may be able to better know your enemy, the Bible calls Satan or the devil. And the first thing you need to do is acknowledge that there is such an enemy. You've got to acknowledge that the enemy exists, that there is a reality, a true reality in our lives that we face called Satan. Invisible as he may be to our eyes, he is visible to us in a thousand other ways, isn't he? And we have to believe that there is such an enemy. I mean, authentically embrace the truth, or we won't fight if we don't think he's there. Now, this can be a slippery slope upon which to live, because here we are, we're living in the age of enlightenment, we're sophisticated, informed people, and it's, it can seem, if you let it, a little medieval or bizarre or insane to think that there's actually a force of evil personified for And people can make a lot of fun of it in a hurry, right? Because they compare it to our sense of logic. Well, the brilliant writer C.S. Lewis, who was brilliant, talk about logic, who was an esteemed professor at Oxford University, he said this is exactly the devil's plan to make it seem uninformed and unsophisticated to even believe that he exists. And so if he can ridicule us somehow and say, why would you, how can you, wait, can you see me? If somehow we can make our enemy believe that we don't exist, well then our options for attacking him open up pretty widely, don't they? This is the devil's plan. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that there are three physical, uh, three realms of existence. There's the physical realm. There is a physical realm, and we see and touch that. There we go. No problem that there's a mental realm, if you will, our emotions, our thinking, our planning. But that there is also a spiritual realm, a kingdom realm that is as real as the other two and as perceptible as the other two, just not with those senses. And so since we live in such an age of, of sensual understanding and, and linear logic, then we, we, we tend as a culture just to, just to underplay the reality of the spiritual realm. Is this making sense? But there is a spiritual realm. And it's in the spiritual realm, as we saw in this passage last week, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the spirit in the air, that, that it's in the spiritual realm that the devil exists. Now, you are here today because you believe in God. And you believe Jesus Christ is your Savior. That's why you're here today, right? And that's the spiritual realm, true? Well, then, why can't the devil exist in the spiritual realm? You are not unsophisticated or uninformed to believe in Jesus. But you see how, just at the core of society, people who try to ridicule us will say, you believe in a devil? Was he red with pitchfork tail? C.S. Lewis said, if that's what you need to, to believe in him, do it. He says, because you better believe in him. The great American evangelist Billy Sunday used to say, I know there's a devil, first, because the Bible says so, and second, because I've done business with him. How many football teams have suffered surprise defeats because they underestimated the strength of their opponent? Surprise? A Mac team is here to play. 
Who would have guessed? Well, the devil not only wants us to underestimate his strength, but to feel that it would be unsophisticated or somehow unenlightened to even believe that he exists. But that doesn't change the fact that he does exist. And knowing your enemy just begins by settling in to the truth that though you may not be able to explain it in much the same way you can't explain all the details of the mystery of God, that, in fact, he exists. Second, understand the nature of your enemy. What is it that we're up against? How can we, how can we uh, know how to successfully defeat him unless we understand what his strengths and limits are? Right? Well, let's look at what the passage says about the nature of the enemy. In Isaiah chapter 14, uh, well, the specific context of this passage is admitted, admittedly about a lot of other things that were happening in the Mideast at that time. But uh, the book of Isaiah, it seems to be sprinkled with little treasures that are, were for later. Have you noticed this? And, and really all the prophets are. They're talking in a large sense about what's happening at the time in Israel and Judah and Babylon, Assyria, these things, Egypt. But in reality, God is also sprinkling little treasures along the way about what's to come and, and, and revelations of himself throughout all the prophets. I kind of wonder sometimes if they, if they went, I don't know why I wrote that. <laughs> you, know? you know, I mean, Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, I wonder if he went like, I don't know where that came from, but I guess we're going to put that in there. I don't know what it has to do with Edom and Babylon, but there we go. We'll put that in there. And so throughout Isaiah, you find these. And here in this passage, is it was one of those treasures. And it's a treasure about the origin of Satan himself, who, who was an angel in heaven. You've got to get this, because it means so much about how to fight him. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself, there's the key, like the Most High. There was an angel in trouble. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. This is the very origin of Satan. What exactly does it tell us about the nature of our enemy? First, that he is a created being. If Satan is an angel, he is a created being. You see, there's a big danger in thinking that Satan is somehow an equal and opposite to God. That's called dualism. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God. There's one God. There is one God. Not that there's just one God for Israel. There is one God. Everything else is created by God, including the angels. And we have been created, according to the psalmist, a little lower than the angels. This is how it works. So we have these heavenly beings that were created by God. You say, but you can't see him. Well, sometimes you can when he wants you to. But the other reality is, because they were created by God doesn't mean they're created in flesh. They were created by God in the kingdom realm. Everything in the kingdom realm comes, proceeds from the creation of God, right? Okay, so you have these angels, and you see that, that Satan, no matter how powerful he was as an angel, whether he was an archangel perhaps, perhaps he was Michael's partner, he's still created. And so he still has limits. He's still finite. That in spite of his superior position among the angels, he never stood a chance in defying God. This is so key to the battle. The relative power difference, if you could even measure it, between Satan and God is really incalculable. 
It's not more. It's not God is ten times more powerful. He is infinitely more powerful than anything He has made. So if you, if you go ten times more, you're still as far away from the end of the power of God as you began because it's infinite. Does this make sense? And you see how this plays into how we fight this fight? That uh, I think this also tells us that he is underpowered to defeat the church of Jesus Christ. Satan is underpowered. You ever driven an underpowered car? Try to get a, you get your Prius going on or whatever. You're trying to get out into traffic, right? And you go, oh my gosh, I can't keep up with this. Those smart cars. I love that. Why do they call them smart? I mean, you're wrapped in a pop can and you're going with the SUVs and a herd of SUVs. I'm smart. I'm smart. Hope nobody has a smart car. That's got to be tough. Get a big head start going up the ramp, little rubber band, shoot, poo, off we go, something. Get me up, get me underpowered, underpowered, underpowered. Satan is underpowered to defeat the church of Jesus Christ because the church is Jesus Christ, indwelt by his spirit, indwelt by the God who is infinitely greater than Satan. Whatever he steals from us, we give him. He's underpowered. Jesus had no trouble with him. He had a direct confrontation in Matthew chapter 4 in the, in the temptation. Jesus dealt with him, bam, bam, bam. Satan ran, ran for cover. See, the problem is when we think we're fighting him. Sure, he is much more powerful than us, but even somehow measurably more powerful than us because he's not infinite. But we're not fighting this on our own. If you turn to Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, you'll see that uh, not only is he underpowered, but his army is vastly outnumbered. I love this passage. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, where it says the symbol of Satan there is the seven-headed beast, dragon. And it says that when he was thrown down, his tail took a third of the stars with him. Now the stars are the, are the image of angels. And so in this rebellion, in this coup, Satan left with a third of the angels. Okay? So you have Satan, big shot, and a third of the angels. What does that leave us with? Good. Westsiders, it's two-thirds. Okay? It's two-thirds. It leaves you with two-thirds. I know, math is hard, I know. But now, <laughs> now let me go slow with this. But how much greater is two-thirds than one-third? It's twice as great, the one and the two on the top. Just forget the third on the bottom now, okay? Don't get confused. But the math, the math, even in our linear thinking, goes, wait a minute. So Satan left with a third of the angels and left Michael, left all the powerful archangels and two-thirds of the regular angels? That wasn't very good planning. So that no matter how you look at this, you understand that the nature of Satan is limited. And this is what, why we must be engaged in the battle. Why must we bother with this battle here in America? And this is what I was talking about in Nigeria. That if the church in America isn't engaged in a battle with Satan and doesn't stay in the fight, then we release Satan from bothering us, giving him more access to more resources 
to, to, to intensifying them, and people like Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and, and people like this, what's his name, uh, Abu Bakr Sheku, this new guy that's coming up who says, I want to be the next Saddam Hussein. He wants to be the next Osama bin Laden. I mean. Now listen, do you see how this works? That if we just go for nice church, if the church in America goes for nice church and doesn't stay engaged in the battle, then the limited, Satan is powerful. Just because he's limited doesn't mean he's not powerful. But his resources then are fully accessible to him and he can intensify them. We've got to keep fighting this fight, even if it's for things that seem small to us. Like, wow, how does my addiction to whatever compare to 276 Nigerian children held in captivity? Oh, it's so small. Yeah, but if we don't fight every one of those addiction fights, we release Satan to do more of that. But to win the battles that you fight, you must begin by understanding that each and every one of them is a winnable battle. You've got to start there. Every single one of them is a winnable battle. By virtue of the limited nature of Satan and the infinite nature of the Holy Spirit, you can go into every battle expecting to see a show of shock and awe from heaven in your favor. And one more thing that you should understand about your enemy is that, that he fights without rules. He fights without rules. Remember the first time that Karen and I were used by God to cast a demon out of a child? It was the most heartbreaking thing. I mean, it was powerful because it was, it was easier than with adults because kids believe. <laughs> It was easier, but it was so heartbreaking just to look into this child's eyes and to hear her story and to see the demons and just to see them come out. But it was so hard. I'm like, Satan, seriously? Seriously? Children? Seriously? We see that in Scripture, don't we? My son falls into the five. See, the thing you've got to get about Satan, you can't fight nice. You can't fight nice. Don't be surprised at some of the things that come out of your mouth in the battle that aren't nice. Because he, he doesn't fight by the rules. Okay, let's move on. Understand the nature. Understand, um, understand the mission of our enemy. To defeat your enemy, you've got to understand why they are your enemy in the first place. What exactly is his problem? One of my favorite books that we used to read to the kids. Betsy, hi. I know you're going to be in this service. I'm up from Cincinnati. My, my daughter. Raise your hand so everybody can stare at you. I love her. She's my favorite child. The boys know it. There's no, there's no contest. So, uh, but one of the books we used to read Bets and the boys at various times in their life was one called Lyle, the Lovable Crocodile. Anybody know that book? So this crocodile moves into the neighborhood, right? And he's so popular. He's so famous. His name is Lyle. And he's so popular. All the kids love him. Except for he keeps getting these notes shoved under his door. I hate you. You're uh, all these terrible things, right? And he doesn't know. He doesn't know who this is. Turns out it's Clover Sue Hipple. Say Clover Sue. Well, turns out, as I recall, Betsy, that, he's, that she's jealous, right, of all the attention that Lyle is getting. And see, Lyle had no way to counteract all these hate notes until he understood, until he understood that Clover Sue Hipple just really wanted to be his friend too, right? Aww. Okay, that's for you girls. Let's move back to the real preaching here. 
What is the devil's problem? What is his problem? Well, his mission, according to the Bible, is first of all to destroy us. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So his mission is to destroy us. But, but why is that? Why is that? Because look at, his, look at his true mission. Back to Isaiah chapter uh, 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost mount of I will ascend. I will make myself the most high. The mission of Satan is to steal the glory of God. The mission of Satan is to steal the glory of God. It's so important that you get that. And that's where we get drug into the battle. Because our primary mission as believers is what? Is to glorify God. And so our songs are like nails on the chalkboard to Him. When we, when we turn our, we've talked before about turning our reflective surfaces toward God in worship and just letting His glory, that blinds the devil. That's blinding to Him. The devil operates in darkness. And when we light up the universe with the glory of God reflecting off of us, he hates that. And we get drugged into the battle. The Bible says that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so as we praise God, and we're drugged into the light, and the light of God reflects off us into the invisible universe, invisible to our physical eyes, into the universe, Satan hates that. It lights the place up, and he operates in darkness. He is the prince of darkness. He hates that. So why does he hate you? Because you're an agent of the glory of God, and it's a mission to steal the glory of God. So you're drug into kind of the cosmic crossfire. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, "So let your do good works, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify, glory, glory, glorify your Father in heaven." So it's not just about your worship, but it's when you're out there doing the stuff of being a Christian and caring for the poor and doing the things that you're doing, sharing your faith, that you're glorifying God. So Satan hates you because you get up every morning to give glory to God. Have you ever noticed that the more consistent and passionate you become in following Jesus and giving glory to God, the more intense the enemy's opposition against you seems to become? Huh. Because his, his mission, his, his real, the, the seat of his mission is to steal glory from God. I'm going to go way out on a limb of speculation here. I have no Bible to support what I'm about to say, so I'll move out of the middle, okay? I am way out on a limb of speculation. Anybody here in the medical profession at all? Some of you are. I know this from living with a nurse who was in geriatric nursing for 20 years or more. And I've heard this from other people, that when the moon gets full, hello? Oh, it's not just the medical profession, some of you? That when the moon gets full, people get crazy. Am I right? I mean, and I'm so reluctant to say this, but it's such a great illustration because it sounds so superstitious. But when the moon gets full, people become different. Yeah, it's true? All right. Debbie says it's true, so it's true. All right? I got a, I got a witness. All right? So 
What's going on there? Listen, the Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims the work of his hands. So you got the moon up there that we've talked about before as a dark rock, right? What's it doing? Reflecting the, just the light of the sun, which is such an image for us of reflecting the glory of God, right? So what happens when you get a full moon with this image up there of reflecting the glory of God but the demons of darkness? It's speculation. I'll go back to the Bible here in a second, but it's, it's something to think about, isn't it? All right. I, I have no Bible to support that, so don't... I might not even say in the 11 o'clock service because it didn't go over that great, but I'm just, just saying before I go back to the Bible, all right? Don't go out and quote me. You know what he says? The Bible says... No, I don't say that at all. All right. Something to think about. But doesn't this, understanding the mission, doesn't, you know, that he wants to steal the glory of God, doesn't this explain why praise and worship is such a powerful weapon? It blinds him. It blinds him. It dispels the darkness. He can't work in the light. He's got night vision. He can't see when you're going nuts for Jesus. And then the fourth thing in terms of this basic presentation is to know the basic weaponry of our enemy. And what's he fighting with? I'm going to boil it down to one basic tool. Satan has one very powerful and basic weapon from which all of his other weapons stem, and that is deception. Deception. He's a liar. How do you know when the devil's lying? His lips are moving. Jesus said, actually, he said it this way. He's talking to the, the Jews and uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus was talking about that, the, the, you know, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's talking about the truth. And uh, he was getting opposition. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come of my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Catch this. Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. Catch this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is what Satan does, is he lies and he messes you up. Look at where it started back in the garden. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Remember God had set him up and said, you can have all this except this. Remember this? You can have anything you see, but don't touch this. And the devil comes, and he says, did God really say? He doesn't even say he didn't say. He asks a question. This is how he works. He slides in. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Oh, the woman said, we may eat from other trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Oh, 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 oh you will not surely die. You won't die. He says, the servant said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Don't you want to be like God? I do. I want to be God. I want to be your God. I want you to do what I'm saying right now, because then I will be your God. And you see the deception? This is how he works. And every attack, every weapon, is a strategic perversion of the truth. How many of you struggle with fear sometimes? Fear. Struggle. It's, it's, it's the perversion of the truth. God has you back. And the devil says, no, he doesn't. It's the perversion of the truth. Confusion. Confusion. Chaos. 
is a perversion of the truth. Death. How many of you, you know, sometimes you feel threatened, like the devil can come and kill you. He cannot touch the days of your life. So the powerful remedy for all of these attacks is to be people of God's truth, his word. Underscores the importance of being in his word, doesn't it? Satan is always trying to persuade you to think that you are somehow an exception to what, is, what it clearly says in the word of God. Isn't he? Come on, you read the Bible and you go, ooh, I don't like the way that feels. I don't, I, I'm not that. There's got to be another way around this. Well, this is exactly the way Satan works. He says, you got really, does it really say that? Whenever we excuse ourselves from the clear teaching of Scripture about why it's okay for us to ignore the needs of our neighbor or turn a blind eye to the poor or drink to excess or have sex outside of marriage or you can fill in the blanks and we're playing right into the devil's hands. We're just saying, oh, I know that's how it was then, but it's now and we're, we're different. And you, you see, and I'm not judging you. I don't judge you. I've got enough stuff to deal with my own life to start worrying about yours, okay? I don't judge you, but I'm telling you the truth. That when, when I or you, we look at Scripture and we see it clearly and we say, yes, but. Then we're playing right into the devil's hand of perverting, of perverting the truth. And the Bible says that we can say that we believe in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the whole thing. But the Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble. But what the demons don't do is obey the clear teaching of Scripture. And the rest of our lives will flow from this if we just, if we just first accept, okay, this is where your victory begins, by deciding to believe that if it's, the clear, if it's clear in the Bible, then it's the standard of your life, no matter how you may presently be comparing to it, that it is the standard of your life. Okay? And I realize that this doesn't suddenly solve all your problems, because for some of you it starts to create problems. What are we going to do now, right? Here we are. We're already this far. What do we do now? That's where you get on your face before God and just say, God, I want to be faithful to the standard that you have set in Scripture. I want to be obedient to it. Show me the way out from where I am now. And don't let the devil fool with you. I am not judging a single one of you. I I couldn't even possibly keep up with all the sin you guys commit. Why would I I want to even know, right? Come on, there's way too many of you. Just do the math. I'm not judging you. If I happen to know something about you, if you know me, you know I don't judge you. I embrace you. I love you. I want you to be well. Okay. But the beginning of consistent victory is right here in accepting God's truth as truth. Okay, that's enough about Satan. That's all you're going to get. Hated to waste a half hour talking about Satan. But you needed to know. Because we're not here because of Satan. We're here because of Jesus Christ. We haven't been herded into this place because we're afraid of Satan. We've come rushing into this place because we love Jesus. We're here because of the blood of Christ. Right? We're here by the blood of Christ. Sons and daughters. Where else would sons and daughters be but in in their father's house, right? That's why we're here. And Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. And that you may have it abundantly. This is the plan of Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John, it says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So that you can have life. Let's just take this teaching and tuck it away in important places so we know we can win every battle. But let's just, this morning, let's just spend the rest of our time just receiving from God. Receiving forgiveness where we need to forgive. Receiving strength where we need strength to take the next step. Receiving anointing for ministry so that we can be engaged in this battle. 
Maybe for some of you receiving salvation, maybe today, right now, is the day that you go, I want to come to Christ. I want to ask Jesus Christ into my life as my Savior, as my Lord. I want to turn to Him. I want to invite Him to come and write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Give me the assurance of my salvation. I want that. Whatever. Whatever it is that you need to receive from heaven. I've been stuck in Isaiah 55 lately. And it's a good place to be stuck. Because another thing Isaiah said was this. On behalf of God, he said, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. And when the word of God comes, like rain, it doesn't go back to God empty. It has a purpose. It has a purpose. And so whatever you can put yourself today in the place of just receiving from God, it's okay. It's not selfish. Does it, is it selfish for a child to come up to their daddy's table? No, that's why, the, that's why daddy sets a table, right? That's not a selfish thing. You pull up to his table and you say, I want to eat from this table. I want to receive what this guy's talking about, Lord. Just send your rain. Send your rain. Let's get some prayer ministry people to come on up. Let the band come back up. and I'll switch back over here to worship leader. <laughs> wow, a thousand people in the church. I couldn't find anybody to help me this week. That's crazy. <laughs> That's all right. I love doing it. <laughs> we got so many wires and stuff anymore. It's like way out of my pay grade here. Let some prayer ministry people come on up and just prepare yourself. Look like the right ear. There you go. Somebody up here knows what they're doing. If you're a person who'd like to receive prayer today, really for anything at all, then uh, you come on up.